Professor Reardon received his doctorate in education in 1997 from Harvard University. He is a member of the National Academy of Education and has been a recipient of a William T. Grant Foundation Scholar Award, a Carnegie Scholar Award, and a National Academy of Education Postdoctoral Fellowship. On behalf of Providence Children's Health, it is now my pleasure to lead all of you in welcoming Professor Reardon to the stage. Thank you, and thank you all for being here. Um, when I was 22 years old, I went and taught high school uh, right after college on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Pine Ridge is in Shannon County, which was then and still is today the poorest county in the United States. Um, and so for a young man of 22 who'd grown up in a kind of a leafy suburb in the Midwest, it was an eye-opening and sort of transformative experience to, to kind of get to know a part of America that, that I didn't know well and didn't hear much about. After I taught there for two years and had a great experience, I went and taught for two years uh, in an affluent suburban community in New Jersey, uh, Morristown, New Jersey, which is about as far away as you can get from Pine Ridge in the socioeconomically and culturally in the United States. And so, in the space of four years, I spent um, time in, in sort of the two Americas, and it got me thinking a lot about inequality, and I was struck by the, the differences and the opportunities that the young people had in those two communities, not just in their schools, but in their communities, in their neighborhoods, uh, and, and their general uh, life chances. And so I went to graduate school to, to sort of try to understand that better and understand what to do about it, and I've essentially been thinking about that question ever since. And so I want to tell you today some things that I and lots of other researchers have learned about that and particularly what, it, what the implications of that are for thinking about early childhood. So one thing I've been doing for the last few years is assembling a massive database that includes standardized test scores from every single public school student in the United States. Uh, so the, the database consists of about 300 million test scores. As you know, we test children a lot in the United States. Um, and um, I think of these test scores as a way of measuring not just children's achievement, but measuring the, the sum total of opportunities that they have in their schools, in their communities, in their families, in their preschool programs, and, and so on. Um, and using these data, we can sort of get a map of educational opportunity in the United States and, and sort of drill down and understand where is opportunity high? Where does it need to be higher? And, and we can also learn something about what are the sort of sources of that inequality and what are the potential ways we can fix it. So I'm going to show you a, f a few uh, things from that project and then talk more generally about the, um, the causes of educational inequality of opportunity and what we can do about it. So this is a map of uh, what I like to think of as a map of educational opportunity in the United States. It's, it's a map of average standardized test scores in every school district in the country. We've done a lot of work to equate the test scores so that they're on a common scale and so on. And the, the dark purple here in the map represents um, school districts where test scores are 
two and a half or more grade levels below the national average, and the dark green represents school districts that are two and a half or more grade levels above the national average. So you can see there's an enormous amount of variation in educational opportunity in the United States. Um, uh, you can't really see Portland very well in there, but Portland is, a, is in the, the light green area, if you're interested. So in addition to just to looking at the map, though, we, we sort of can look at what the, the opportunity is related to. And so we've, what we do is we look at every school district um, in the United States. Uh, each of those dots is a school district, one of the 12,000 school districts in the United States. And on the horizontal axis, we have a measure of the socioeconomic conditions in those communities, the in income levels, parents' education levels, uh, poverty rates, unemployment rates, and so on, with the more advantaged communities being off to my left, your right. Um, and uh, for some reason, the legend has creeped into the picture. But um, what you can see is that opportunity is much, much higher in most more advantaged places than it is in less advantaged places. The most affluent communities in the United States have test scores that are two to three grade levels above the national average. Uh, and the least advantaged places have test scores that are two to three grade levels below the national average. If we uh, look at Oregon, for example, these are the, all the school districts in Oregon. Um, and you can see they, some of them are better th than you would predict based on uh, their socioeconomic conditions. So this, this line here, this line is the sort of average uh, for school districts of a given socioeconomic condition, and, and you can see that some of them, like uh, I pulled out the three biggest school districts in Oregon, uh, Beaverton, Portland, and Salem, um, each of those districts has test scores and therefore educational opportunity that's a bit higher than you would predict based on the school districts that are socioeconomically like them around the country, uh, particularly Portland and, and Beaverton. So that suggests there's something creating higher than expected opportunity uh, in those communities, and we would like to know what it is. I'm not going to be able to tell you what it is about Portland and Beaverton today, but, um, but, but, but there's something sort of better than average uh, going on, I think, for children here. But it's not equally better than average. If we look at the scores just for low-income students, um, so now, now these are just the average test scores for, for poor students in each of these school districts. You can see that nationally, if you look at the sort of gray dots, um, in most school districts, low-income students don't have as much educational opportunity uh, as, as the national average. And that's true in Oregon and true uh, in the large school districts in Oregon as well. That is, they're pretty typical of districts like them socioeconomically in terms of the in terms of the educational opportunity. And remember, these aren't measures of school quality. I'm, I'm saying opportunity because I want you to think of these test scores as the sum total of all the educational opportunities children have up until the time they're in middle school. So that is prenatal experiences in healthcare, early childhood experiences in their home, early childhood experiences in their neighborhoods, the quality of their childcare, the quality of their preschool, the quality of their K-12 schools, after-school programs, and so on. These are measures of the sort of opportunity in a neighborhood uh, provides to children, not, the, not just measures of school quality. 
If you look instead at, at the non-poor students, um, uh, you can see that on average non-poor students, uh, and typically that means students who aren't eligible for free or reduced price lunch, score much, much higher uh, than low-income students do in their same school districts. And in places like uh, Portland and Beaverton, the, the non-poor students actually perform much higher than most districts non-poor students do around the country. That is, there's a lot of educational opportunity in those communities, but it's disproportionately uh, available to the students who aren't poor. And I think that, that raises questions, and, and certainly Portland and Beaverton are not alone in that. There are lots of school districts around the country where the, the opportunity isn't shared equally between low-income and high-income students. Some of that is because of differences in family resources and what parents can provide, but it says that the communities aren't making up for those differences, that, that uh, we haven't found ways as a society to provide the same kinds of opportunities to children regardless of their family background. Now, um, in addition to looking at socioeconomic differences, it's uh, important to look at racial and ethnic differences, which remain a, a salient source of inequality in the United States. And if we look um, at the test scores and therefore the opportunity that children have uh, for different racial and ethnic groups, this is the uh, patterns for Hispanic students. Um, and you can see that on average, Hispanic students nationally have lower educational opportunities than the national average, um, and that's, Oregon is sort of typical in that regard. Seattle and, and Beaverton and Salem all fall pretty much near the average for students like that, uh, students, of Hispanic students. African-American students um, are a smaller part of the population in Oregon, um, but are, are also performing and having lower opportunities than the average student in the country. White students, in contrast, um, have much higher opportunities and higher socioeconomic background in general, uh, and you see that reflected in this. So that, what these pictures should tell you is that while there's generally high educational opportunity in some of the large school districts in Portland and in affluent school districts around the country, uh, that opportunity is not equally shared uh, by race or by socioeconomic background of the students. And that says we have a lot of work to do, I think, as a society to think about how we create broader opportunity. Now, this, this sort of shows you what the patterns are like, but not what the source of those inequalities are. So one way to think about this is, um, when do these inequalities emerge? I'm showing you here test scores that are sort of the average test scores from grades three to eight. But if we just look at eighth grade test scores, we see a pattern like the one I showed you before. So one question you might ask is, well, does it look the same earlier on? Does this disparity between high and low income school districts arise during the school years. If you look at these same scores in third grade, the relationship is a little more muted, but relatively similar. That is, even by third grade, there's a big difference in the opportunities that children have in, in high and low income school districts. That says that most of the differences in opportunity in America, in educational opportunity, are present by the time children get to third grade. They widen a little bit from third grade on, but not substantially. Another way to look at this is, we did a study where we had a nationally representative sample of 25,000 children who entered kindergarten in 1998. And those children were assessed in their math and reading scores uh, and skills 
seven times between kindergarten and eighth grade um, by they were sort of sat down one-on-one -on -one with a trained assessor who asked them a set of questions to elicit information about their reading and math scores. And those results let us look at how inequalities uh, in, in achievement and therefore in educational opportunity grow from kindergarten through eighth grade. If we thought schools, K-12 schools, were the main source of educational inequality, we should expect to see those disparities widen a great deal from kindergarten through eighth grade. Instead, what we see is, is, whoops, I forgot to show you this. Uh, that's third grade there. Um, instead, what we see is this. The, the vertical axis here is a measure of the achievement gap between high and low income students. This is nationally. And the horizontal axis is the age of the children. And so when we follow these children from kindergarten through eighth grade, you can see that the gap in test scores between low income and high income students doesn't grow much at all from kindergarten through eighth grade. It's already enormous by the time children get to kindergarten. In fact, in a different study where we had fourth graders and, um, who we followed into kindergarten, the achievement gap or the school readiness gap at age four was already as big as it is at kindergarten entry. That says that most of the action that produces inequality of educational outcomes is happening in early childhood, as, as early as age four or earlier. And so if we want to really uh, affect in educational inequality, we're going to need to think of strategies that reduce it at the starting gate rather than try to fix it sort of by eighth grade when it's already been in place for a long, long time. So the, the, the findings that we have from a number of these kinds of studies is that educational opportunity disparities are enormous. They're very big by eighth grade, but they're almost as big by the time children are in kindergarten or in third grade, that is, lots of the action is early on, and so early childhood is the, I, I think, the, the right place to think about acting if we want to reduce educational inequality. So why do we have these large disparities? What, what goes into them? Well, first, let me show you um, a little historical picture. So this is a picture of the size of the achievement gap, both by race and by income, over the last uh, 50, 60 years, and I put this together by assembling a whole bunch of data from the last 60 years um, on standardized test scores from big samples of children, and there's, there's sort of two striking patterns here. Um, one is that the racial achievement gaps, the black-white gap and the Hispanic-white gap, um, were enormous in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, and narrowed a lot uh, by, by the mid-1970s for, for children born through the 1970s, and have continued to decline slowly since then, but still are quite large. That, that gap now is about two grade levels difference, so the, the, those gaps are still quite big. Why did those gaps decline? They declined because of lots of investments in the 60s and, and early 70s, the war on poverty, the desegregation of schools, the desegregation of hospitals in the South benefited black children. Um, Head Start was introduced uh, in the 60s. Lots of social investments, not just in education, but in other uh, dimensions, um, led to a decline in the disparity in opportunity between blacks and whites and between Hispanics and whites in the United States. We haven't made the same kinds of investments over the last 30 years, and we haven't seen as much progress as a result. When we dig deeper into these data, the real action and why the black-white and Hispanic-white gaps have narrowed in the last few decades seems to be driven mostly by improvements in school readiness for 
black and Latino children. That is, the narrowing isn't happening because our schools are getting more equal, the K-12 schools. It's happening because kids are getting to school with a little less inequality than they used to. But we still have a long way to go. That's still a two-grade level difference in achievement when kids get to, get to uh, uh, kindergarten. Now, the white line is the achievement gap between low-income and high-income students. And that was relatively low by historical standards uh, for children who were born in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but grew a lot uh, for children born from the 70s through the 90s. And the reason it grew, I think uh, there were a number of reasons. So one reason is that income inequality grew dramatically over that period. So this is a picture of in income inequality in the United States over the last century. Um, and what it measures is the proportion of all the income earned in the United States that goes to the top 10% of earners. If we had no income inequality, if everyone earned exactly the same amount, then 10% of the income would go to the top 10% of earners. Now, we have more income inequality than that, but in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, 45% of all income in the United States went to the top 10% of earners. That declined abruptly with the start of World War II, which changed the economy in many ways uh, and dramatically raised wages for the working class. Uh, in ways that were sustained for several decades. And so in the 40s and 50s and 60s and into the 70s, the United States was in a period of historically low economic inequality. There was still a third of all the income went to the top 10%, but that was down from 45%. But starting in 1980 or so, income inequality has skyrocketed in the United States. And now the top 10% of earners earn almost 50% of all the income in the United States, more than at any point in the last century. That dipped a little bit at the start of the recession, but it came back uh, pretty quickly, and so income inequality has, has continued to rise since the start of the, of the recession. So because income inequality has risen, it means that high and low income families have increasingly large disparities in the amount of resources that parents have to invest in their children uh, to pay for housing in a good neighborhood or to, to buy educational opportunities for their children. So that growing income inequality has been part of what has led to this growth in the achievement gap between high and low income students. But I don't think that's the whole story. Um, one thing that's happened is that over the last 30 or 40 years, the amount that parents invest in their children in terms of how much time or how much money they spend with their children has gone up for everyone. So low-income families today spend about 50% more on, uh, on early childhood investments in their children than they did 40 years ago in constant dollars. So from $835 to $1,300. So low-income families are spending more uh, on investing in their, in their young children's cognitive development. That is by paying for enrichment activities, um, books in the home, uh, games, uh, museum visits and things like that, libraries, zoos. But the spending of high-income families has gone up 150% over that same time period. So everyone's spending more on their children than they used to, but the disparity in what families are spending has grown dramatically. And so what that means is that high-income children are growing up with a lot more opportunities to learn relative to low-income children than they were 30 or 40 years ago. If you look at time use data, so there's some good uh, studies going back to the 70s where they survey large numbers of adults and ask them, what did you do all day? It's kind of like the Richard Scarry book, except it's 
real data, I guess. Uh, um, and, and one of the things they can say is how much time they spent with their children and doing, you know, reading to their children or playing with their children or engaging with their children. And everyone says they spend more time with their children than they used to. Maybe that's not true, but they all say it. But the increase is much greater for uh, parents with a college degree than it is for parents with, without a college degree. And so while it's a similar story to this, that is, there's more investment in time in children everywhere among less educated and more educated parents, but the growth has been fastest among the highly educated. And so that contributes, I think, to the kinds of differences and opportunities that, that young children have. Another thing that's happened as a result of rising income inequality is that we've become increasingly segregated by income. So the United States is much more segregated residentially by income than it was in the 1970s. And our schools are also more segregated by income. Our preschools are likely more segregated by income, though we don't have good data to test that. So all of that suggests that growing income inequality has led to growing disparities in the amount of opportunities that low-income and high-income children have in the United States. And we see that reflected in those widening achievement gaps. But I think it's not just the growing in income inequality that's affected um, the, this inequality. And one way of thinking about this, I think we've changed our ideas of what it is to be a parent and what parents are supposed to do with young children. And so there's this really fascinating study done by Julia Wrigley uh, at CUNY in New York. And she looked at magazine articles um, in magazines like Good Housekeeping and um, Ladies Home Journal and magazines that were aimed at mothers from the early part of the 20th century uh, up to the 1980s when she did the study. And she looked at what those articles said that parents should do with their children. Um, so lots of people would read you know, a magazine and there would be an article or a column by a doctor who would say, you know, so you have this new infant, what are you supposed to do with her or him? And she categorized the kinds of advice that people got. And this advice gives us a sort of window into how our society sort of thought about what, what parents should be doing with young children. I, I think it's a fascinating study. So here's what she finds. So she categorizes all the advice that parents get from, from medical experts and child development experts and so on in these magazines into five categories. Nutrition and medical advice, that is advice about your child's body and physical well-being. What, what do you feed him or her? Uh, what should you do with them? Uh, advice about fresh air, um, which was common when there was fresh air, I guess. Uh, 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 now, it's not a thing anymore. Um, uh, and then advice about intellectual stimulation and social-emotional development, so advice about thinking about your child as a, as a cognitive uh, being rather than a physical being. And in the first part of the 20th century, almost all the advice was about your child's physical well-being. What do you feed your child, and how do you keep him or her healthy? And that, that was not misplaced advice. Infant mortality was actually quite high in the United States in the first part of the 20th century. It's still actually higher than almost any developed country in the world, um, but it is a lot lower than it was at the beginning of the 20th century. So um, at a time when infant mortality was high, you might expect a lot of advice. But there was also advice in these articles saying, don't overstimulate your child. It's best if your child sleeps 20 to 22 hours a day. Your child is, is really a vegetative being and just needs to grow. Um, 
which sounds silly today, but you know, this was the advice of the experts at the time. Starting in the middle of the century and really taking off with the rise of developmental psychology as a field, um, the advice shifts to be much more about thinking of your child as a cognitive being, a, a socio-emotional being, and it's much more about thinking about how do you engage with your child, how do you develop your child's brain uh, and mind, not just how do you develop your child's body. And I think that shift is really important in understanding how we think about early childhood today and, and how we think about inequality. Because what happens is in the 60s and 70s and 80s, highly educated parents and middle class and upper income parents get this message about how important it is to think of your child as a cognitive and socio-emotional being. And they start to invest a whole lot of time and energy in their kids' cognitive development. Partly they're worried about the economy not being as robust as it used to be, and they're worried about their kids' education, and they hear that early childhood is important, and they start to do it. And so their children really benefit from that, and you see that in the test scores, and you see that in the widening gaps in college going, and so on during the 80s and 90s. But I think what we've seen in the last decade or two has been actually a, something of a little bit of a reversal of that. So we did a study last year where we looked at the school readiness gap between high and low income children uh, and, and black, Hispanic, and white children. And we found that those, those school readiness gaps had narrowed uh, from the late 90s uh, until today. And the reason why we think they narrowed is when you look at the data, low-income families are much more likely now to say they are reading to their children every day, they're taking their ch child to libraries and zoos and museums, their children are playing games on the computer designed to help them learn math or the alphabet or something like that. That is, there's much more engagement of low-income families in the kinds of things that middle-income families were starting to do much more of in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and that that increase in the kind of parental, uh, in, in sort of getting the, the idea that, that investing in your child's cognitive development is important has sort of paid off in the sense that it's helped their children get to kindergarten a little bit more ready uh, than they were a decade or two ago. Now it's not closed the, the school readiness gap, the school readiness gap at kindergarten entry is still enormous and there's no amount of uh, reading Goodnight Moon to your child that is going to eliminate the sort of structural and economic and racial inequality that surrounds families. And so I don't think it's enough to sort of say, let's get all families, you know, reading to their kids every night and we'll have solved the problem. We need good prenatal care and good health care in early childhood and good family support programs and high quality child care and high quality preschool and a smooth transition from preschool into kindergarten and all of that stuff. But, but we also need parents, you know, to be a to know and be able to have the sort of time and resources to be their, their child's first and best teacher. And, and I think these data and the data that we have showing that this sort of change in the gap um, suggests that, that there is you know, a kind of a moment here when I think it's possible to make some real progress because there's broad social understanding now in the importance of early childhood as a key developmental period that shapes later life outcomes uh, in many ways. There's a study, uh, they did an experiment in the late 90s in five big cities where they randomly offered low-income families a, a voucher 
to move to housing in a low poverty neighborhood. And some families got the voucher and, and some got a regular Section 8 voucher. And the ones who moved to the low poverty neighborhoods as a result of the experiment, their children end up dramatically better off today in their, in their 20s than the children who didn't get that voucher and, and weren't, didn't have the opportunity to move, to move to a low poverty neighborhood. Those children who moved are 30% more likely to have graduated from college, their wages are 30% higher today, and they're about one-third less likely to be a, a single mom uh, in, their, in their 20s. And, and so that's attributable largely to the benefits of living in a, a low-poverty neighborhood. But it, that, those benefits only accrued to the children who moved when they were young. Kids who moved when they were teenagers didn't really benefit much from the move. They still hung out with their friends from the old neighborhood, and they, they, their social life didn't really change very much as a result of it. So it says that early childhood is this sort of key developmental period when we have an opportunity to radically improve the opportunities of children if we, if we are strategic about how we make those investments. Um, and so I, I think if what, what the research suggests is the best ways to do that are a combination of strategies. And so even if, I'm, I'm always thinking about educational opportunity, but I don't think educational opportunity only happens in schools. So what creates educational opportunity is the, all the experiences children have up until the time they're in school and through school. So high quality prenatal care to make sure kids are born healthy, high quality early childhood um, uh, childcare and high quality preschool, family support programs, home visitation programs, uh, income support programs, a, a robust safety net that makes it possible for parents to, to be home at night or you know, not worry too much about losing, uh, if they lose the job, they're not gonna have lights on and things like that. The whole social safety net makes it easier for low income families to be uh, the parents that they all wanna be. So I think the sort of strategy of um, let's just, let's think we can just make our schools better and we'll solve the problem, or let's think we can just uh, have some high quality preschools and that'll make the problem better. Those are great, but I think the, the most effective strategy is gonna be a multi-pronged integrated approach that, that brings together uh, health policy, ho housing policy, uh, early childhood policy, income support and safety net pro policies with preschool and, and K-12 education policies. I think only a coordinated effort on those fronts is gonna substantially improve the equality of opportunity uh, in America. And so, as I understand it, that's the mission of, of the Children's Institute, and, and so I think you guys, are, you guys are onto something. So I uh, encourage you to, to keep it up, and, and I look forward to sort of learning more from what what the Institute does in Oregon and, and the successes you have and how those can be translated into, into other places. Thank you for your time. This is Rafael Otto bringing you the Early Link Podcast. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Learn more at childinst.org.